If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the March 15th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, as we continue our journey through Women's History Month, we celebrate the film 9 to 5 and its writer, Patricia Resnick, with her 2019 interview with our own Anne Stockwell. But first, Carla Jay is the author of Tales of the Lavender Menace, a memoir of liberation, and a lesbian feminist icon in her own right. Steve Pride reports. Carla Jay was already a member of the feminist action group Red Stockings, as well as the early lesbian organization Daughters of Bolitis, when in 1969, in the wake of the Stonewall Riots, she joined the chess-forming Gay Liberation Front, GLF. We're meeting in Midtown New York City for a chat about the future and the past. I'm Carla Jay. I'm the author, editor, and translator of 10 books, the most recent of which is Tales of the Lavender Menace, a Memoir of Liberation. I also edited 24 books for NYU Press for a series called The Cutting Edge, Lesbian Life and Literature. I just retired from Pace University after 39 years of teaching English, women's studies, and queer studies. How did you become an activist? I really became caught up in historical events. For one thing, I, I went to Barnard, which was part of Columbia, and I just happened to be there during the Columbia uprisings. And it was the total injustice of the New York City Tactical Police Force, which rounded up the innocent and the guilty alike, which thrust me into the movement. There's nothing like being out there on the campus and being chased around by police to see friends arrested and beaten up for doing nothing mostly, and also to be treated badly by the men who thought that women's place in the movement was to sleep with them and to provide peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, that was a great way to make a feminist out of anyone. So a lot of us came out of this uprising as feminists, as pacifists. And also another important thing that happened to me when I was in college was that Malcolm X came to Barnard to speak in February. I think it was in 1964. And two days later, he was dead. And I met him two days before his assassination. And it was just such a colossal event, you know, to meet someone who was then assassinated and who was really, at that moment in his life, reaching out to, you know, white 
college kids like me. It was really quite phenomenal for me. And I really was very interested in the civil rights movement as well. Then I heard about the women's movement and that feminists were forming groups, you know, Red Stockings, New York Radical Feminists. And I went to an event where different feminist groups were recruiting. And I decided to go with a radical group called Red Stockings, which had developed something called consciousness raising, which they had borrowed from the mainland Chinese, as we called them back then. And in China, it was called speaking bitterness. So I joined consciousness raising, and there were a lot of very interesting people in that group, including Rita Mae Brown, Alex Kate Shulman, both of whom are well-known writers, and we analyzed things that we had never discussed before as women, things about how we were raised differently as men and women. We just never had spoken of that, being raised as boys and girls, and relationships and our education and how that might have been different because of our gender. Today, of course, people speak of these things, but people really had never spoken of these things. And we wrote position papers, and we also did a lot of work around abortion, which was illegal. However, the feminist movement was homophobic. It was also somewhat classist. They were middle-class white ladies. They weren't particularly interested in the civil rights movement. And they certainly weren't interested in lesbians. Although Red Stockings created the saying, the personal is political, when it came to lesbians, they thought the personal was personal, and they didn't want to hear about it. So when Stonewall happened and the Gay Liberation Front formed shortly thereafter, I didn't walk over there. I ran over there to join the Gay Liberation Front. And that's how I became not just a, a radical feminist, I became a radical gay activist. You know, in the 1960s, it seemed possible that anyone could change the world. How do you explain that era to millennials? I don't think that young people today can understand what our lives were like in the 1960s. When I was at Barnard, a lesbian could be thrown out for being a lesbian. Women's colleges in particular were homophobic because they didn't want to be known as hotbeds of lesbians. You could be arrested if there were a raid on a bar. Even if you were not arrested in the bar raid because you had the right ID and you were of legal age, which was of 18 at the time in New York, and you were wearing the proper clothing, if they got any information off you, if they got your name, if they got your address, and they found out your employer or your school or where you lived, you would lose your apartment, you would lose your job, your family would kick you out. You could simply lose everything, your marriage, your children, anything you had, you would lose. We had no rights at all. We couldn't find each other because words like homosexual or gay or lesbian, which came along with the Gay Liberation Front, could not be printed in any newspaper or in the yellow pages, which preceded the internet. And so we couldn't find each other. It was really this time of loneliness and isolation, and many people were ashamed of each other or of themselves. It was not kind of a happy time for most gay men and lesbians to be who we were. So it's hard to understand that today. When we first met the Gay Liberation Front, there were some people, interestingly enough, who expressed the desire when we said, what do we want? Some people actually said they wanted to get married. But more people said, I would really just like to be able to hold my lover's hand and not be beaten up. <laughs> you know, That seemed like a far more realistic goal. I never thought that we'd have the right to get married in my lifetime. I'm thrilled that we do it. It really wasn't a primary goal. 
like John Waters, you know, I thought that not having to go in the military was one of the perks of being gay and maybe not having to get married, which was his other comment. But I'm thrilled that people can get married. It's a complicated issue. It certainly wasn't my own first priority. We wanted to live in peace at a time when people were being persecuted. And we also have to remember that there were people in our movement who were killed for being out there and working for the movement. This is Steve Pride, and I'm talking to pioneering LGBT activist Carla J. Besides your work in New York, you were involved in the very first Pride Parade in Los Angeles. The GLF, we organized the parade in 1970, and I was actually in the first poster that organized the picnic the day before, the Saturday before the parade, and we advertised that we had a picnic at Griffith Park. So we had a big picnic, and then we had a parade going down what was the Hollywood Boulevard or something. It wasn't a long parade. The difference between the parade in Los Angeles and the parade in New York, we called them a march back then because we thought of them as being political rather than being, you know, the Thanksgiving Day parade. We had banners, you know, mostly homemade with markers and things like that, was that in Los Angeles there were some floats, even in the first march, and they had this float with a tube of Vaseline on it, which I could not believe that they had something like that. It was very in your face. And that was like KY of 1969, 1970. This was in June of 1970. And we had this march and we were kind of afraid there would be violence. My strategy was always to stay smack in the middle of the crowd, because if you were like at the edge close to the people who were the onlookers, you were much more likely to be hit by a bottle or somebody could throw beer at you or something like that. And we did walk and it went really well and there was a very thin crowd, maybe one deep, you know, of people who were out there mostly cheering us on. We were booed by some people. And around that event, there was also a sit-in at the federal building where we camped for several days asking for rights, and uh, there was fasting going on, and we sat out there for several days and nights at the federal building, and Troy Perry was the spokesperson for that event, although he went home for showers. The rest of us stayed there while he got to shower. We were going to fast until there were rights for lesbians and gay men, but obviously we, we gave in. <laughs> As a movement, what's our biggest challenge? One of the problems of the gay movement back in 1969, and maybe today, is that we have very tenuous bonds. What is it that holds us together? We like people of the same sex. This is LG, some B people, and not all people who are I or T. And what holds us all together is that we are oppressed by some people in society at large as queer. And that's a very tenuous bond. We don't come from the same class. We don't come from the same race. We don't come from the same religious background. We don't have the same educational background. And so what held people in, for example, the black civil rights movement together does not hold us together. And this is one reason why the black movement could have a leader like Martin Luther King Jr. And we never had a Martin Luther Queen to lead us. When anyone has risen to the top of our movement, we have torn that person down because there is never going to be a person that represents us. And this was the problem from the very beginning. We were in there, you know, 
black, white, Latinos, street transvestites, people who had sex in the back of trucks, lesbians who came in off the streets, college-educated radical feminists like myself, gay men who had been on the Vence Ramos brigades, men who came in from Mattachin. We had nothing in common except the fact that we were really angry about what had happened at Stonewall. We wanted to do something, and we couldn't agree on much more. And we tried to hold it together. We did. We did a lot. You know, we had a lot of actions. We created dances. We picketed the New York Times. We had other political actions as well. But the other side of it is, you know, when people say, well, why didn't these groups last? We never intended it to last. We weren't setting up a corporation that was supposed to last in perpetuity. We had no political structure. We didn't even have leaders like a president, vice president. We had a chair for a month whose name was picked out of a hat. That's how I became the head for one month. My name was simply picked out of a hat. We were an anarchistic sort of organization. But those same sorts of issues exist today. People need more to act on a micro front. And that's why when groups represent us nationally and they lobby for something nationally to represent us all, no one is ever going to agree with what it is they want to do. Gay men and lesbians in the military? Well, a lot of people are going to like that. And other people are going to say, we don't want to get in the military. You know, if there's ever a war and there's a draft, you have lost your get out of the military free card, you know? So we are never going to agree on anything and everything. And instead of taking activism into our own hands, we've pulled out our credit cards and we've turned over our own lives to large organizations like, for example, the Human Rights Campaign. We have become lobbyists. And it's not that we shouldn't do that. There is some irony, however, in the fact that Edie Windsor, a single plaintiff, overturned all of these laws when I'm 100% certain that probably large organizations like Lambda Legal Defense that they were putting together these coalitions of plaintiffs that would represent different categories, let's say, of people who were discriminated against, like veterans and people who couldn't get other kinds of benefits because their marriages weren't recognized by the federal government, for example, social security benefits and so on. But that's what many people do. People would rather partake of social events and write out a financial reward for someone to take care of us. Now, for certain things, that makes sense. We can't do cancer research. We can't do HIV research. So, of course, give money to somebody who can do this research for you. There are things that we cannot do. However, in our local communities, there are things we can do. Just to give you one, for instance, I see a lot of activists like myself who, unlike me, didn't have this moment of enlightenment where I said to myself, aha, we never got a dime for what we did. And I said to myself, I got to get a job, you know. I never got any money for activism. I'm not complaining. I did okay. But I see a lot of people I knew from the women's movement, from the LGBTQ movement, who are really badly off. People without whom we wouldn't have marriage. We wouldn't have anything. And if you're out there and you're young, you know, and you can't go over to help an LGBTQ senior for an hour a week, help them shop, help them whatever, do something, then there's really a problem. Say thank you to these people because their being out helped us be out. The people who are older than I am, who are 80, helped me be out. Carla, any final thoughts you want to share? What I learned from Gandhi was until you find something you're willing to die for, 
you don't have something you're willing to live for. And because I inadvertently faced death literally a couple of times, and because I faced the wrath of friends and foes, and faced poverty and lived in poverty, there's nothing that frightens me. The fact that I have lost my eyesight, you're going to have to run me over with a Mack truck to stop me. You know, because I've been so lucky to be in this movement, to have had this life, to have seen these changes, to have met all the people I've met, to have gone the places I've gone, to have seen the changes I've seen. And, you know, I just feel incredibly lucky. And I think that's an amazing thing. This has been a conversation with legendary lesbian and feminist activist Carla J. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Today, Carla J. has written a shelf of books and is a distinguished professor emerita at New York City's Pace University. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Gertrude Stein poses for Picasso, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In 1905, just when they were getting to know each other, Picasso asked Gertrude Stein to sit for a portrait. She was 32 and he was just 24, right before he took up Cubism. Stein posed 90 times, sitting in a large broken armchair wearing her favorite brown velvet coat and skirt. Picasso chose to sit in a little kitchen chair to paint. After traveling to Spain in the autumn of 1906, he finally completed her head from memory. When someone mentioned to Picasso that Stein didn't look like her portrait, he quipped, she will. The painting is now known as Portrait of Gertrude Stein. After Gertrude's death in 1946, it was gifted to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, where it remains to this day. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Pat Gershinoff. Hello, I'm Ann Stockwell, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. As written by Patricia Resnick and directed by Colin Higgins, the film 9 to 5 remains a rallying cry of socialist feminist fantasy, a rousing exploration of the potentially transformative power of sisterhood, solidarity, and unashamed, unrestricted ambition. IMRU's Ann Stockwell is the former editor-in-chief of The Advocate magazine, author of The Guerrilla Guide to Mastering Student Loan Debt, longtime editor for Bruce Valanche, and a four-time cancer survivor, founder of Well Again, a cancer support nonprofit organization, board secretary of IMRU Media, the parent of IMRU Radio, a mover, a shaker, and other cool dance moves. She sat across from Resnick for this 2019 conversation. I'm Ann Stockwell. I'm delighted to be here with screenwriter and Hollywood legend Patricia Resnick. Let me just recap a couple of your credits. You started out in 1978 with a wedding, working yep. with Robert Altman. Yes. 
1980, you wrote the iconic comedy 9 to 5. Yep. Then you went on to write the libretto of the musical 9 to 5. Much later, yes. You worked on the final season of Mad Men. I did. Now we can look at, on Netflix, Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City. Absolutely. I want to talk about some other things, too, but let's start with Tales of the City, which I just finished and which I enjoyed. What was your involvement with the project, and how did it come to you? So I was co-executive producer, which means I was a member of the writers' rooms. On television, series, you see endless producer credits, and I know everybody's like, "What? why is everybody a producer? But in television, you usually have a couple of non-writing producers who actually produce, and then the writers, uh, the upper-level writers, all have uh, various supervising producer executive producer, co-executive producer. So I was in the writer's room. I think there were six of us, plus Lauren Morelli, who was the showrunner. And I had heard that they were going to do a contemporary version of Tales of the City. I'd always loved Tales. I really wanted to be involved. And a very old friend of mine, Alan Poole, was producing. And I got in touch with him and I asked if I could be considered for it. It's a process. You get your script in and you have to work your way up through the ranks. And then if the showrunner likes it, you eventually meet with the showrunner and then they decide how they want to put their room together. So I'm very happy that I got to be a part of it. So you wrote a spec script? No, they just read a script sample having nothing to do with the show. You you try to go through the, the things that you've written that are originals that have a feel of what you're trying to get hired on, a tone of what you're trying to get hired on. That's what they read, and then they decide whether they want to meet with you. So, for example, oddly enough, I used the same script of mine for Tales of the City and for the show I'm working on now, which is a fantastic show called Better Things, which is Pamela Adlon, and that's on FX. So I used the same sample as different as those shows are. Why remake Tales now? I mean, first of all, there are a lot of people who are going to see this Tales that never saw the original. So if you could talk a little bit about what did it mean in the first place, this story? What did we want it to mean now? In the writer's room, it meant different things to different people. The other writers were much younger than I am and came from very different backgrounds. We had two New York playwrights, one of whom is South Korean. We had a fantastic American black writer who had done TV but also did plays. They ranged from, I don't know, I think early 30s to maybe 40. And some of them were very aware of tales. Some of them had never heard of tales. For me, when it first came out and uh, I was reading it, we had just finished filming a wedding. I was driving from Chicago where we shot to Florida, where I was originally from, to see my family. I was driving with my first girlfriend, and we had gotten the book, and whoever was not driving, we took turns reading it aloud to each other. And it was the first piece that I'd ever read that dealt with being gay with some humor and lightness and life, and everybody wasn't, like, killing themselves. And so it always had a place in my heart. And... That's why I wanted to get involved in it. So the original tales dealt with queer life with some lightness and humor. What did you want 
from this iteration of the story? So by setting it now, and again, you know, this this was a show I worked on. It was not my show. But I think we all were very much in agreement that we wanted to try to cover the spectrum of queer life to talk more deeply about some things that in the earlier iterations, it was made for television in the 90s. One season was for PBS and one season was for Showtime. And even since the 90s till now, so many things have changed. And so one of the writers in the room is trans, and we were able to go much more deeply into the story of being trans. You know, originally they had the animadrigal character, and that was groundbreaking at the time. I mean, the 70s to have a trans character. But now we wanted to have her, but also talk about, we talked about a younger uh, man who prior to transition had been a lesbian and how that affected his girlfriend. And also how he also, uh, along with his gender, he started to question his sexuality. So we wanted to deal with that. We wanted to look at the world now, San Francisco. We didn't want to spend a ton of time on the tech stuff because that's not our story. But obviously, it's a very expensive city to live in now. There's a lot of pressure on people to find places to live. We wanted to deal with that. And then we just we wanted to just tell a story of um, not just queer life, but also uh, the lead character, played by Laura Linney, is straight. We wanted to talk about her relationship with her ex-husband, her relationship with the child she left behind, who's now an adult, who's played by Ellen Page. So there's a lot to say. One thing, it's throwing you a little bit of a curveball, but I think about it all the time. Here we are at this point in our culture, and we, our number of uh, initials in our series to describe ourselves continues to expand. And I watch people now on the presidential debate stage and so on. I can see them trying to get every initial right. They completely lose their point that they were going right. to make afterward because if they stumble yeah. on one of our initials, right. they're going to look homophobic. Right. All of that is to ask you, when are we going to end up with one word that describes us all? And what's the word? I mean, I feel like the word is queer. It's interesting because I learned a lot being in the Tales writer's room. I think everybody in the room did because we only know our own experience. So the two gay men in the room learned a lot about what it's like to be a lesbian. We all learned a little bit more about what it's like to be trans. Two of the women in the room, I would have called bisexual. They call themselves queer. I feel weird referring to myself as queer. I have no problem with anyone else. The word I like to use for myself is actually gay. That's just what I'm the most comfortable with. But what was explained to me, and I kind of loved, because I kept saying to them, well, why queer? What, like, Why are we using that word? Why are you saying you're queer as opposed to you're gay or you're a lesbian or you're bi? And what they explained to me is that for example, our writer's room, if we had said, oh, it's a gay writer's room, well, that wouldn't have been true because, first of all, the writer who's trans, he's married to a, a woman, so he's straight. And um, the two women who I would have called by, one is in a very serious relationship with a woman and one is engaged currently to a man. But by saying queer, it covered everybody in the room. So I've now adopted that 
for everything but when I'm just referring to myself. I understand. Is a relief to have one syllable. Yeah, that's a lot of letters. If nothing else, <laughs> yeah. In Hollywood, is it more disadvantageous to be a woman or a lesbian? I think being a female is still disadvantageous. Possibly, if you're going to be a woman, maybe being a lesbian, I don't know if it really helps you, but at least it gets you out of the pile of, here's just a bunch of women. So if you're a lesbian, then maybe, especially in terms of working in a writer's room, you would have a slightly different view of things. Your life experiences might be a little bit better. I think now there definitely is a group of lesbian women in Hollywood who are writers and directors who all seem to know each other and be supportive of each other. And I think that's great. I'm not really part of that, just a function of when and where I grew up, where I am in my in my life. I have kids, but my kids are well into their 20s. I'm in a different life stage than they are. But absolutely, if you look at the Writers Guild, if you look at the Directors Guild, and you look at the percentage of women in the membership, it's very low. If you look at numbers of roles written for females as opposed to males every year in TV and movies, still very low. How does a queer writer get noticed, seen, produced, is it still really just a white male decision-making system that's evaluating all the stories we're trying to tell? Well, I definitely think that it's still the vast majority of people in power positions and, and the decision-makers do tend to be white males. It's getting a little bit better. My last two showrunners have both been women, one straight, one gay, and that's been for me, a wonderful experience. I'm sure there's terrible female showrunners, but my experience has been both Pamela Adlon and Lauren Morelli were just incredible to work for and with. I think as far as starting out, it's kind of the same, whatever your sexuality is. It's really the same. It's just, it's a hard business to get in. It's a hard business to stay in. I don't think of myself as a queer writer. I think of myself as a writer. Sometimes it figures in what I'm writing. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, it just completely depends on what I'm working on. I speak at lots of places, and young people always ask about getting an agent and getting in. And it's the same questions that I asked when I was at USC a million years ago, and everyone's story is different. Tell us how you got in. I went to USC, majored in film for my last two years of college. I grew up in Miami Beach, Florida, where at that time there was very little show business, which I was in love with. And so um, when I moved here, whenever I would see trucks indicating filming, I would always pull over and walk over and try to watch and see what they were doing. And I would ask who was directing and who was in it. And I was driving in Westwood one day and I saw some trucks and I pulled over and I asked those questions and it turned out it was a Robert Altman film and he was definitely one of my heroes. And so I waited around on the sidewalk until he came out of the building that they were filming in and I told him that I was going to write a paper on him for one of my classes and asked if I could interview him for the paper, which he let me do. And um, when I finished the paper, I dropped it off. I think about a week later, he called me and he said he wanted to hire me, which was unbelievable. Now, it took a year, which was fine because I got to finish college. And then um, he'd gotten a movie set up and he wanted to hire me, but he couldn't pay me. 
And I was graduating, and my dad had said that he would pay for my college, but once I graduated, I was on my own. So I went to the American Film Institute and got into their internship program, and they gave me a stipend for 90 days to work for him. And then I just made sure as best I could that by the end of the 90 days, I would be indispensable enough that he would have to keep me on. How'd you do that? What was your strategy to become (laughs) indispensable? I just tried to fill like any holes or gaps that I saw. So my job was really just the assistant to the publicist. So all I was really supposed to do was write the actor's bios and go with them when they were being interviewed and things like that. But because I would go with them, I actually, you know, I got to know some of them. And so I really like actors. I admire what they do. A lot of people in other parts of show business don't like actors. But I guess because I do, I became close to them. And so the one thing I can think of, the particular thing was we were filming on a First Nations reservation in Calgary, Canada. It was called Buffalo Bill and the Indians with Paul Newman and Burt Lancaster and Harvey Keitel and just Geraldine Chaplin, amazing people. And after the summer, we were still filming. It was really cold. And the tents were just freezing where they had to change. So the First Nations people were so cold because they didn't have any heaters in their tents. And Harvey had a little heater and a backup heater in case his heater broke. And so I went to him and I talked him out of his backup heater. And um, got it to the First Nations people, so they had a heater. And I promised Harvey, who, by the way, was an incredibly nice guy. I promised him if his heater broke, I'd bring back the backup heater. But I would just stupid things like that, where by the end of it, I honestly don't remember really other things that I did, but he kept me on. So I read in an interview that I was given to prep with you that sometime in that time period, you wrote some sketches for Lily Tomlin show appearing nightly. So that was just after that. So after a wedding, was it after a wedding? No, sorry. It was before a wedding. So I was working for Altman. I desperately wanted to write. I had written a spec script. I could not get him to read it. His right-hand person, a woman named Scott Bushnell, had read it and kept trying to get him to read it. And he was producing a movie that Lily Tomlin was in. And... um Altman at that time was not directing, so I didn't have really very much to do. I was just hanging around. So I was hanging around on the set. It was called The Late Show, the movie. Isn't that funny? It's Lily Tomlin and Art Carney. Um, and a cat. Yeah, yes. So Lily was improving a lot of her lines, and she would sort of call out to the set in general, you know, what could I say here? And I started yelling answers back. And that led to her finding out who I was, eventually asking me to write a sketch for her. She was going to do a Broadway show. Then I wrote a couple sketches. Then Altman went to see the Broadway show. And then he said, he used to call me the kid. He was like, ah, the kid can write. And that's what led to me working on a wedding. We'll be back with the rest of Ann Stockwell's conversation with Patricia Resnick after this quick break. Gertrude Stein's Portrait of Picasso coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Picasso's painting, titled Portrait of Gertrude Stein, is proof of the irrevocable link between poet and artist. Picasso was often drawn to poets and was so attracted to Stein's physical presence that he suggested painting her portrait, even before getting to know her well. 
20 years later, Stein completed a literary portrait of Picasso she called If I Told Him. Appearing in Vanity Fair was her way of capturing Picasso's genius. She attempted to express his Cubist style using her signature language. In one passage she wrote, Exact resemblance. To exact resemblance, the exact resemblance is exact as a resemblance, exactly as resembling, exactly resembling, exactly in resemblance, exactly a resemblance, exactly in resemblance. For this is so, because. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Pat Gershinoff. Hello, I'm Desiree Akhavan, the writer, director, and actor in the film Appropriate Behavior. And you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, on air since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. Now, back to Ann Stockwell's visit with 9 to 5 screenwriter Patricia Resnick. I would like to talk to you for five hours about Robert Altman because he's yeah. certainly, he's the reason that I do what I do. He was, he, he was amazing. Of course, lots yeah. of people don't know who he was or what he did. If you could sum up in a sentence, I know you can't, but if yeah. you could, what did he do to change filmmaking in America? First of all, he did very specific things like... He would have multiple people on camera talking at the same time, which was not done. In fact, a whole sound system was invented where he was able to mic multiple people and adjust their levels. But a lot of what he did was tell stories that were not the sort of general ABC. You have the lead and this happens and then that happens and then there's a turn and then that happens. And he would follow multiple stories, multiple characters the secondary and tertiary characters were always as interesting as the primary characters. I still struggle with this all these years later when I'm writing. I cannot tell you how often I get studio notes, network notes, too many characters, cut down the characters. You know, if I have a line in a hospital about my leads, I'll have a little scene with the nurses that have nothing to do with them. Still, people are sort of like, why are we hearing from the nurses? Well, why shouldn't we hear from the nurses? So I think that's what he did. And then the way he made movies was very revolutionary. He had everybody involved on location for the three months or whatever it took. And it was sort of like summer camp for adults. And he very much welcomed people to actors could come up with ideas. A craft service could come up with ideas, writers, anybody. And so everybody felt really like this was their movie. Everyone was invested. You really felt like a family in a way that groups on a long-running television show do, but he was so inclusive. It was a really wonderful way to work. How long after that was it, a little while, that you did 9 to 5? Just a couple of years. And again, for all our friends who are, you know, have never seen that film and don't know what it meant, 9 to 5 was what, 1980, right? Yes, in the height of the first of our big business revolutions. Right. Everybody was wearing shoulder pads and this frizzy hair, and women were in the workplace, and money was good all of a sudden. Yep. Greed is good, right? right. Michael Douglas was saying greed is good. Yeah. So into this comes this idea, 9 to 5. I think Jane Fonda started to put this project together, but I don't know 
How did it come to be and how did you come to write it? I'm Vash Bodhi. And I'm Wenzel Jones. And you're listening to a conversation between Anne Stockwell and Patricia Resnick. So my involvement was I read in one of the trade papers, Jane Fonda wanted to make a movie about secretaries with Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton. So we've already covered my relationship with Lily. Dolly, I had met briefly when I I wrote a piece for a share special. I wrote a sketch for Cher and her guest, who was Dolly. And I was there when they filmed it. And so I knew Dolly a little bit. I was a big fan of Jane Fonda's. And so I thought, well, I'm the perfect person for this. I decided. I asked my agent to find out if there was a writer. Yet there wasn't. Jane and I happened to be at the time with the same agency. We were able to get her, you know, a script or two to read. I already had the Altman and then Tomlin credits. And I met with her, and she gave me this giant pile of very serious statistics about clerical workers. But she wanted it to be a comedy because she felt that she could make the point she wanted to make about women in the world of the office. It would be more palatable if it was a comedy. And so I went off then to come up with a story, which was... They would be three secretaries with the worst boss in the world, and they would actually try to kill him. That's how it started. And uh, we went and pitched it to 20th Century Fox, and we just moved forward from there. Let me just ask you this. Do you like the movie? That's so funny. You know, it's been so long. The first time I saw it, it was really tough for me because it's kind of like you have a kid right? And the kid gets to be like seven or eight years old. And then someone comes and takes the kid and sends them off to military school. And you don't see the kid for a long time. And the kid comes home and their head is shaved and they're all in a uniform and they're saluting. And you're kind of like, it's kind of my kid. Under there somewhere is my kid. So the first time I saw it, it was like very tough. And then honestly, for years, I think I struggled with other people loving it more than I did because I still mourn for my version, which, you know, I never got to see. Plenty of it was left. I got Soul Story and Shared Screenplay. So the writers who adjudicated credit certainly felt my story was basically still there. And then what happens is over the years, you know what I mean? You sort of soften up and I saw how much it meant to people, how much joy it brought people. And then I felt that I, in a certain way, regained ownership of it for myself when Dolly and I did the musical in 2009 because Colin had passed away and theatrical rights actually go to story, not screenplay. So it would have been mine to do the book, which is the play part, the spoken part. So I got to relook at it. Now, again, I couldn't make gigantic changes. I couldn't go back to them trying to kill him because... I mean, I could have, but people had certain expectations. But now I, I've learned to love it again, and it's running on the West End in London right now. It's doing great. It was only supposed to go to August. It was extended till April. There's a tour that's going through Great Britain, and I got to go for a month while we were getting ready to open. And I got to sit there every night and just hear people laughing and having a wonderful time, and that meant a lot to me. I saw Lily and Jane recently. They were on The Ellen Show, actually, Mm -hmm. and they suggested that there's a sequel in the works. Are you writing that? 
I was writing it with Rashida Jones. I actually put it together. I started thinking about a year ago during Me Too, this is actually really the time to do it. And there's a lot going on in offices now that's actually worse. People don't have benefits anymore. People are permanent temps. There's HR, you can go to HR, often HR's hand is tied. And we now, you know, it's now clear because of Me Too how much sexual harassment is still going on. So I decided to set it now, put three young women in the office place of today, and then have them hook up with Lily, Dolly, and Jane. And I thought that it would be good to have a younger writer of color work with me. So we got Rashida. And I am sad to say that because Disney bought Fox, it recently was just killed. So I That's can't horrifying. tell you why or how. I don't know if it's just not in the Disney world, if it's not family enough. So they own the underlying rights, Fox does, and Disney owns Fox. So unless something changes drastically, we did work very hard on it, but I think it's done. I'm so sorry to hear that. We've got the musical, which is nice. So I figured in the gig economy, I wanted to see Lily driving for Uber. That's (laughs) That's a very funny idea. Well, if anybody's listening, you know, revive it on that basis, please. Yeah, I love that. Let's talk for a minute about Mad Men, which, again, really changed the game. Yeah. So you came in on the final season of Mad Men. Right. What does it mean? You were a consulting producer. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? It can mean a lot of different things on a lot of different shows, honestly. What happened with me was I had never worked in a writer's room. The first half of my career, I had written movies, primarily by myself. Then I spent a number of years writing television movies by myself. That whole business died for a while. Then I spent about five years on and off on the book for the musical with various workshops and out of town and and all of that. I worked on an animated show. You know, I was supporting two kids on my own and I was doing whatever I could to keep us going. I had never considered staffing on a television show because you can't do it from home. You go to work every day for a number of hours, depending on the show. It could be 10 to 6, 10 to 7. It could be 10 to 11. It depends on the show. And as a single parent, I didn't want to be gone that much. But uh, right before the before Mad Men, my older child, my daughter, had already gone to college. My younger child, my son, was in 11th grade. And by that point, they go in their room and don't want to see you much anyway. And I suddenly thought, oh, you know, I could staff on a TV show if somebody would hire me, because that's usually you start early and you work your way up the ladder. So I was like, I've got to get somebody who can think a little bit out of the box. And I had heard Matt Weiner was looking for a female writer for the last season. He was an acquaintance. His oldest son and my son were in school together. And so I emailed him and I just asked if my script could go into the pile that Fox was going to read and then it was going to go to Lionsgate and see if it ever moved up to him. So that happened. And then they decided they needed for that last season to hire somebody who had some experience in the room. But he wanted to hire me. So he hired me as a consulting producer, which on that show meant I came in two to three days a week. Robert Town, who wrote Chinatown and 
half of the best movies ever written, was also a consulting producer. We just came in and we were in the room and we would add our ideas, thoughts, as the season was worked out. And that's what I did on that show. I think I was a consulting producer on my next show, too. I'm not sure exactly. I I think for me, it's because I didn't come up that ladder in the writer's room. I came in through the side. So I had so many credits. You couldn't start me as a lower level writer. On the other hand, I didn't have a lot of time in the writer's room. So now I've kind of worked my way. Now I'm a co-EP. The next show I was on, I actually got to be, you know, I got to do a script. And, and on Mad Men, I really didn't, I didn't get to do that. But I learned an incredible amount. That was an amazing room to start on. And I was such a fan of the show. And I think Matt is so smart. And every writer in that room, it was one of the most erudite rooms I've ever been in. So it was a great, great place to just start learning how to work in a writer's room. What was the next series that you got to write a script on? It's so all over the place. I think the next thing I worked on was an ABC family show called Recovery Road, which only lasted a season, but was also a really interesting show for me to work on because it dealt with addiction and recovery and um something I've had personal experience with over the years. And I felt I had stories to tell about that and was glad to get a chance to tell those stories. And I also ended up making some very, very close friends on that show. That doesn't always happen that have stayed friends. You know, I've worked on, I think I'm on my sixth. Tales was an amazing room to work on because it was an LGBT room. I'd certainly never had that experience. And it was also an extremely cohesive room. Everybody happened to get along. I think when showrunners put together a room, they almost have to cast the room if they're smart. So hopefully you get people that are more interested in making the show good than in their ego or being competitive, which can happen most of the rooms I've been in, that has not been the situation, but you become friendly with people who have worked on lots of other rooms, and I've heard lots of different stories. And the room I'm in now, the Better Things room, is also just incredibly warm, friendly, fun room to be in. But you have to learn to work with other people as opposed to being a movie writer where you just sit in a room by yourself. Very different skill set. I really have wondered about that a lot. My experience as a journalist is... You know, my first three drafts were completely just chicken scratch. They never made any sense at all, and I doubted my own sanity until something would come together about the fourth time around. Right. And other people's feedback was just essential in that process. When you're writing a movie, who tells you? Everyone. (laughs) Everyone tells you. You get notes. You get so many notes. You have producers who give you notes, often before the studio ever sees it. You've rewritten it based on your producer's notes. If you have a director attached, you'll get director notes. If you have stars attached, you'll get notes from them. Then it goes into the studio. Then you're going to get lots of notes from the studio. So you get lots and lots and lots and lots of notes. The real question is you have to work out what are the good notes from the bad notes. Sometimes you think a note is not a good note. You have to fight it. But even if it's an original that you brought to them, you're now a hired hand and you can be fired 
I'll give you one little clue to understanding how much this happens. When you go to see a movie, if you see between two writers' names an ampersand, that means they're a writing team. If you see an A-N-D, that means somebody came in and rewrote somebody else. And many times you'll see multiple A-N-Ds. It's almost just the way it is now that feature scripts are, they'll be done, you know, somebody will be given it. If a guy wrote it, they decide, oh, the female roles are flat. Someone will be given it, a woman will be given it to do a female pass. Or somebody might do a youth pass, you know, if the writer is in their 40s. They might give it to somebody in their 20s to do a youth pass on it. So getting feedback is not a problem. It's getting good feedback that's a problem. I remember Carrie Fisher used to say she would get called in to punch up the girl. Yes, all the time. I want to be sure that we talk about the issue of ageism in the business, Mm -hmm. as well as all the other isms. You wrote a very widely seen piece in 2016, taking the Academy to task for elevating you, if you want, I guess kicking you upstairs to emeritus status rather than voting status. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So the Academy, in its struggles to make the Academy more diverse, it's still, I don't even know what, 80-something percent white males, but they're really struggling to make it more diverse. But one of their first ideas, which I think they didn't think through, was, well, if we take everybody over a certain age and we kick them up to emeritus so they can't vote, it'll get a bunch of the old white guys out and make room for newer diverse people. And my feeling was like, okay, well, you're casting this very wide net. You're also kicking out, you know, I'm a female and I'm a gay female, so you're getting rid of me. You're also making the assumption that once people hit a certain age, they don't go to the movies anymore. I have to tell you, when I go to screenings at the Academy, I feel young. It's mostly really elderly people, but they're the ones going. I don't see young people at the screenings. They're not there. So we all have ways now of watching a lot of the movies at home, but there's something to be said about watching them on a big screen with good sound with other people. Anyway, I felt like they were trying to do the right thing the wrong way. And they did walk that back, by the way. Are you voting now? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a great place for us to end. I have so enjoyed this. Thank Thank you you. very much, Patricia Resnick. Long creative life to you, you, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. That's public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. This week, Liza Minnelli turns 75. So we close with her performing Somewhere Over the Rainbow in a rare 1960 TV performance when she was 15. Good night. A land that I heard of once in a love of God.
do.